Well, it's good to see you again tonight. Welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. Sunday evenings at 5.30, we go over our Sunday school lessons. And tonight, we're actually doing it live. This is not a video, so what you see is what you get. And most of the time, whenever you watch, we do it all in one take. And so it's just kind of real, and it's kind of raw and uh, unedited. And so we hope that you enjoy being with us. Hope that you're doing well. We had a wonderful service this morning, and appreciate uh, you all being a part of it. This uh, particular lesson that we're going to look at tonight has to do with uh, the worldviews that are a threat to Christianity. Now, we're not talking so much here about religion, even though it does include religion and it does include some cults and some bad philosophies. We're talking more about the worldview, how we look and how we see society, how we see right from wrong, how we see redemption, how we see relationships, all of uh, those type of things. Now, we looked before at Gnosticism. And while Gnosticism as an actual established religion uh, not really here. We don't really deal with that. But some of the principles and the ideas behind Gnosticism are certainly still here. And Gnosticism has, as you remember, the root word in the Greek for knowledge. And the idea is there's some knowledge here that God didn't give you, but you have to go to the occult. You have to go to some New Age guru. You have to go to somebody who has extra biblical revelation, we call it, to get the real story and the real picture. And we looked and saw that it came from the garden at the temptation of Adam and Eve when the serpent, first of all, questioned the word of God. Did God say this? And then when he came and he said, you will not surely die if you eat the fruit, for the Lord knows that in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's. In other words, God didn't tell you in his word the whole story. And so there are a lot of people today that are always looking for something else. The, the Bible's good, but it's not good enough. The Bible helps, but boy, this preacher or this particular teaching or this particular book, now that's where the answer really is. And that, of course is uh, a slap in the face to God and to his word. So that was Gnosticism. Now we're going to look today at a, another worldview that's a threat to Christianity, and that is the worldview of legalism. Now legalism gets thrown around a whole lot, and anytime anybody does something that I think is extreme, then I call them a legalist. If I do something other people think is extreme, then they call me a legalist, even if it's in line with the Word of God. It's just one of those things we kind of throw around, and we really shouldn't. Legalism has uh, the idea with legal is law, keeping law in order to gain favor with God. Now, that's never worked because nobody's ever been able to keep the law of God. There's where the problem really is. Now, if you and I could perfectly keep the law of God, then I think God would accept that. But the problem is, by the time I realize that I've broken a law, it's too late to correct it. When I was a kid, I was walking with my uncle barefoot in a pasture. You know what happens when you do that. And he told me in all of his wisdom, if you feel something squishy coming up between your toes, it's too late to take your foot out. Well... Let me tell you, by the time you realize you've broken God's law, it's too late to take your foot out. You've already done it, and you have committed sin 
And the Bible says that the soul that sins will die. So when you look back at the Old Testament with all of the laws and all of those things, you have to come to realize that God never intended for the Jews to say, if we can keep the law and keep enough of the law and break just a little of it and make sure that the good outweighs the bad, then we'll be right with God. That was never the design. In fact, in the New Testament, we find that the law was given like a mirror. And the mirror exposed us for what we are. Can you imagine going before your mirror in your bathroom and you find that you have a smudge of dirt on your face and your hair is not combed? Well, that'd be a nice problem to have, wouldn't it? And can you imagine then somebody going, oh, my face is dirty and my hair is not combed, and then picking up the mirror and trying to wash their face or trying to comb their hair with the mirror? You say, well, that'd be silly. I would agree. That would, I would agree. The mirror is designed to reveal, but it's not designed to fix or to cleanse anything. And that's the way the law of God was. The law is designed to expose our sinfulness, to keep us from boasting, to keep us from thinking that we have attained any type of righteousness or godliness. In fact, all the law does is expose where we fail. It exposes where we mess up. It exposes where we fall short. That's why in Romans 3, 23, it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when we think about going to a legalistic or law-based system of religion, we have one huge flaw in trying to keep the law. And that is the fact that we've already broken it. We're already under the penalty of sin. And the Bible also says if you're guilty in breaking one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Now this brings us to the truth of the gospel. God sent his son who perfectly and totally fulfilled the law so that when he died on the cross, he could take the wrath of God in our place for our lawlessness or our breaking of the law and in doing so, then, he is the perfect and sufficient sacrifice. And so all of us today who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we have a right standing with God, not because we go to church, not because we give money, not because we witness, and not because we try to live a moral life. All of those things are the result of what God has done for us, but they're not the cause. And if you ever slip back into thinking that because you do the right things and because you act right, that gives you favor with God, then you've slipped back into the trap of legalism. Now, when we define legalism, think of it like this. It's a religious system that puts more emphasis on works-based righteousness than the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Remember now, grace is always undeserved. Grace is always a gift. Some people say a free gift. Well, it's not a gift if it's not free, is it? Legalism places more emphasis on works-based righteousness than the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So when we think about this, we realize that this is a deadly, deadly important thing because some people are falling into the trap of joining a religion, even a cult, 
that might name the name of Jesus. It might even affirm the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But then it has to go a little bit further, kind of like Gnosticism. There's got to be more to it than just that. It can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. And so there are groups that will tell you, you have to repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in the risen Christ, and then you have to be baptized. Or then you have to, one group says, speak in tongues in order to be saved. All of those things are adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are legalistic. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And you know, sometimes we don't go on with the rest of that verse, and we really should. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In other words, God has given us everything that we need to know, and if he doesn't say it, we don't need to know it. And if he has revealed it to us, then it belongs to us, and it also belongs, it says here, that we may do all the words of this law. This is to bring us into obedience to the Lord, and of course that is done by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gives us the ability to do what God wants us to do as he is revealed in his law. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the law commanded us to fly but gave us no ability to fly. Grace gives us wings that we might fly. Grace gives us God's ability in our lives to do what he wants us to do and to obey him. But our obedience is the result, the result of grace not the cause of God's favor. So I hope that makes sense. Now, when we talk about legalism, we want to uh, think about it like this. It is an affront to God's word, first of all. Secondly, it is an affront to the gospel of salvation. Thirdly, it is an affront to sanctification, the growth that we have. And fourthly, it is an affront to humility, godly humility. So let's talk about that for just a moment. How is it an affront to God's Word? Well, if you've got a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and turn back and let's go back and look at the Garden of Eden because uh, it implies, legalism implies, that God's Word is not quite enough. We've got a better way. We can keep you safe. We can keep you in line by adding to what God had said. God didn't quite tell you enough. You're not safe by simply obeying the Word of God. There has to be more. There has to be some man-made thing, a safety zone maybe. Now here's what I mean. Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Now this is the interchange between the, uh, between the serpent and um, Eve. And the serpent has asked the question, can you uh, eat of any tree you want? And she said um, in verse uh, 2, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, now pay attention to that. She's quoting God, apparently, or at least she seems to. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Okay? Ding, ding, ding. She's true on that, right? We'll give her credit for a right answer. And then she has to take one step further. A step that God never said. I don't know where she got this, but it said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, 
neither shall you touch it. Now, I don't know if it was Adam that told her that. It might have been. I don't know if she just thought it up herself. But it's as if what God said, don't eat of the tree. Oh, that's not near good enough. If, if that's bad, then we can add a commandment to that and we can be even better. And the man-made commandment is supposed to keep you safe. The man-made commandment is supposed to make sure you don't mess up. How did that work for Eve? You know it didn't. In fact, it's interesting that Eve here, the legalist who added to God's word, who added an extra commandment, then right after that, she seems to take away from the word of God. You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it. And then you know what the verse says, lest you die. Lest you die. Lest you die, really? This is the person who is so concerned about obedience, she added an extra commandment because that'll keep her safe because what God said isn't nearly, nearly, nearly protective enough. And then she turns around and plays fast and loose by denying the word of God, questioning it and changing it because God never said, don't eat of the fruit lest you die. He said, for in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now notice that when people fall into a legalistic type thing, they always play fast and loose with the word of God. And they always want to try to add something or do something that makes them feel secure and feel safe instead of just simply trusting God and his word. That's where Eve really messed up. And secondly, we said that this is an affront to the gospel, an affront to the gospel. You see, it didn't just start with or stop with the tree and eating of the fruit. It kept on and on and on and on and on. Even in the New Testament, this uh, idea of legalism had to be dealt with. In fact, the Bible tells us that Paul had tremendous problems with some people that we call the Judaizers. Judaizers. Strange word. What were they saying? Well, they would go into these Gentile areas... And these Gentile churches where Paul had led them to the Lord and established a church. And they started saying, yeah, Paul's a good old guy, but he didn't tell you enough. It's good that you trust Jesus. It's good that you put your faith in him. But you know, God really wants more out of you than that. He wants to make you to be a practicing Jew. If you want to please God, you've got to follow what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and especially Moses, you've got to follow what they said to do. You see, they in effect were saying, you've got to take the law and clean up your life. You've got to go further than grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to add to the gospel in order to be right with God. So you're going to have to be circumcised if you're a male. And you are going to have to keep the feast. And you're going to have to worship on a certain day. And you're going to have to abstain from certain foods. And they were just piling all of this on. And at one point in the book of Acts, there was a council held about it. Can Gentiles be saved? And they said, yes, Gentiles can be saved. God had proven that by giving them the Holy Spirit. But then they were thinking, do they have to become Jews like us, partaking of the feast and eating the food that we have to eat and all of that? And you know what they said? 
We shouldn't burden the Gentiles with the things that even our fathers couldn't do. Because you see, even Abraham failed and sinned by breaking God's law. So did Isaac, so did Jacob, and so did Moses. The law revealed to them their sin, and Father Abraham, what was it said about him in the Old Testament as well as the New? He believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, anything else that flows out of your life is simply obedience because of what God has done for you, not to get him to give you anything. And so whenever you think about these additional man-made requirements, let me give you an example. If someone said, to be saved, Greg, you've got to admit that you're a sinner, check. You have got to trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for your sin, check. You've got to pray and call upon him, check. And then you've got to run around this auditorium ten times. And on that tenth time, you know that you'll be saved. Well, let's say that I go, no, wait a minute. I'll admit that I'm a sinner, and I'll trust Jesus, and I'll ask him to save me, but there's no way in the world I'm running around the auditorium ten times, and that person would say, well, then you can't be saved. Now, what just happened? What just happened is that what Jesus did is secondary to what I do. And that's why, as Baptists, we say that salvation is separate from baptism. Should a saved person get baptized? You bet. And I often wonder, a person who refuses water baptism, were they really born again? That's the first command of obedience. But if I were to say baptism is a requirement for salvation, then that means that salvation is not done because of Jesus. It's done because of what we do in the baptistry. Do you see what I mean on that? And no matter what it might be, whatever you add to it, the man-made requirement becomes more important than what God has done for you through Christ on the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so this is what Paul dealt with so many times, and this is why he uh, wrote so many of the letters that he wrote. He deals with it in Romans. He deals with it in Galatians, for example. And it continues on. Because back in the uh, Reformation, what was the big issue that people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others had with the Roman Catholic Church? It was that the Roman Catholic Church said, yes, there's a triune God, we all agree about that, and his son came to earth as God in human flesh, we agree on that, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, I mean, those things we agree on. But then they say that in order for you to be justified, you have to keep the sacraments of the church. And you have to keep all seven of them. And if you don't, then you end up in a place called purgatory. And purgatory has P-U-R-G, like purge on it. And you have to pay for the rest of your sins. In other words, Jesus didn't do it all on the cross. He got the ball rolling. He got it started. Now you've got to complete it. And if you don't get it done right before you die, then it'll be finished in purgatory. And so they were saying all of this, and Luther and Calvin and others said, absolutely not. We stand on sola scriptura, only scripture. And then it's sola fide, only faith. Sola gratia, only grace, grace alone. And then solus Christus, only Jesus brings salvation.
And what they were doing is magnifying the truth of the word of God and the truth of grace over man-made rituals and man-made religious activity. When you uh, think about what Paul wrote about this in Galatians 2.21, he said, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law or through man's performance, then Christ died for no purpose. He died in vain. It was empty. And so the reformers understood that. We need to understand that as well. There may be some things that I do that are good and are holy and they're righteous, but they are because I have been saved, not in order to get saved. Thirdly, it becomes an affront to personal sanctification because there are more uh, the one person around that will tell you that if you want to grow in the Lord, it's by following a list of do's or don'ts. If you really want to be holy, holy people act like this. Holy people live like this. Well, that may be true to a certain extent. But if you press that, are any of us truly holy in the way that we live? That would be to say that we don't sin. And the Bible says, if you and I say that we have no sin, we are liars and his truth is not in us. You see, justification is instant when we put our faith and trust in Christ and confess him as Lord. Sanctification, becoming holy, is a process. And as God is working in us and on us and in us and through us, he takes us through the baby steps. He teaches us how to walk. He teaches us how to wear the armor. He teaches us how to be mature. He teaches us how to die to self. And all of that is a process. And legalism says it boils down to this, a list of do's and don'ts. And if you will do as I tell you to do, and if you will act like me, then you will become holy. Now, where did they ever find that in the Word of God? And God deals with each of his children individually. He deals with us knowing what we're capable of. He deals with us knowing what our capacity is. He deals with us knowing what our development is. Some people grow faster than others in the physical realm. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm as well. And God doesn't deal with every child in a cookie-cutter fashion. He individually works with them and brings them to where they need to be. And that's a wonderful thing. He's very, very patient. He's very merciful. And he knows how to discipline his children because he knows us to the depths of our soul. Now, the legalist will just simply say, here's what you do. I don't smoke and I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't cuss. I go to church. I witness. And all of those things are done out of flesh, out of a performance-based mentality, trying to get points with God, trying to climb the ladder to get closer to God, because obviously if you're doing that, you're right with God. But some of those same people over the years, trust me on this, I've been saved for decades, been in the ministry for decades. Some of those same people that are so strong and harsh and lay down the law have fallen the farthest into immorality and sin because all of that neglects one important thing, and that is the heart 
of the believer, the heart and soul, how we think, the choices that we make, and uh, the feelings that we have, and where we find our peace, and where we find our joy. And you'll never find your joy, and you'll never find your peace in just simply keeping a list of rules to satisfy someone else. Keeping a list of rules so you look better than someone else. In fact, let me talk about two Pharisees here very quickly. There was a Pharisee that uh, came along in the Gospel of Luke, and there was a Pharisee that came along after that. And these Pharisees were very good at trying to uh, uh, put on a show for other people, putting on a show. I mean, Romans chapter 14 talks about the issue of eating meat offered to idols and how the people in the early church were considered to be holy if they abstained from eating meat because it was offered to idols. And then other people are saying, you're nuts, we're free to do all of this. And Paul said the issue is love, love for God and love for our brothers and not stumbling one another. But he also said that we've got to be careful about thinking that things like that make us better than other people. And that brings us to the fourth point. It's an affront to humility because people who have legalistic tendencies always tend to feel better about themselves than they ought to. They feel better about themselves because they don't compare themselves to God. They compare themselves to others and they look better. This one Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke Let me read it in uh, chapter 18, verse 10 through 12. He said, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I have. Do you hear what he was saying? Going to God, two men going into the temple to pray, and one of them used his prayer time to literally put the other one down and boast about who he was on the basis of his performance. Do you ever feel like you're more worthy to pray if you've read your Bible every day? Well, I think reading your Bible every day is a wonderful thing to do, and I recommend it, but it doesn't make you worthy to pray. Do you ever feel like that if you have lived a moral life, you are more worthy to pray? Well, I'm more for living a moral life, but it doesn't make you worthy to pray. You see, there's only one thing that makes you worthy in the sight of God and gives you access to God, and that is Jesus Christ and what he did. And so your righteousness is based not on your performance, but on what Jesus did for you on the cross. You are not guilty because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And the righteousness of God has been put on your account because of the grace of God through Christ. Now, there's another Pharisee. His name was Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Now, listen to him as he writes about his performance. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Maybe he knew this other Pharisee, right? He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, some translations say dung or manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or performance or legalism, 
But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Boy, that's a whole lot different than a to-do list or a to-don't list, maybe we would say. Knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, in conclusion, we might say this. Faith is complete trust in what Christ has done. Legalism, trust in self, puts down others, finds security in comparison, and is dependent upon the power of the flesh and minimizes the cross. It's impossible for the true legalist to go to heaven. Did you hear that? If you're trusting in anything in addition to or other than the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's not salvation, no matter what you say about it. Jesus only. Jesus alone. By grace alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. According to the word of God alone. Let me tell you something. It is possible for a true born-again Christian to be influenced by the legalist and have legalistic tendencies. We begin to judge other people. And we begin to feel superior. And that's why the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Now listen to this. Not of works lest any man should boast. It always makes us proud of ourselves. It always makes us feel a little better about ourselves. A little more worthy. And it diminishes what Christ has done. Don't be that. Don't be that person. Obedience, however, is not legalism. Understand that. When Eve was making the statement about not touching the tree, now that was legalism. But if she had not eaten the fruit, that wouldn't have been legalism. That would have been smart. That was obedience. And always remember, as we close, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm there and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's an old hymn that says, Take time to be holy. And, and then it goes on about meeting with the Lord. Take time to be holy? No, you don't take time to be holy. You are holy because of what Jesus has done for you. There's another hymn that I would like a whole lot better. And it would say this, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. We were bruised by the fall. We're cursed by the law. But Christ has redeemed us once for all. And brothers and sisters, you are free in Jesus. And he is the one who is making you everything that you ought to be. Trust him, not your self-discipline, even though there's nothing wrong with that. Trust him and not just your morality, even though there's nothing wrong with that. But don't leave Christ out of the equation and realize that anything good in you is not based on your performance. It's based on Christ and the fact that he has forgiven you, that he dwells in you, that he loves you and has given grace to you. And Christ has set us free. Can we pray together? Father, as we conclude this time, we want to give you thanks and praise that Jesus paid our sin debt in full, that he is the one that sets us free from sin, and he sets us free from the law as well. 
We thank you, Father, that you deal with us as your children and you know where we are, you know what we've done, you know what we're going to do, and you know what motivates us, you know what we need, you know how to build us up and make us complete in you, and we thank you that you are doing that. And we pray, Father, that that's the way we would live as well, treating other people the way that you treat us and resting fully in his grace this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your Lord's Day. Thank you for tuning in. And it's a joy to be able to spend some time with you today. God bless.